You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Today, we're going to be talking about the book of Jeremiah, and I'm very excited about this. It's, it's one of my favorite books. It's a big book, so of course, we're not going to be able to cover everything and every nuance, which my nerdy self, of course, wants to do. But it's really going to talk about three main themes that we find in the book of Jeremiah. And I think they're very relevant to our current political climate, but also our podcast, of course, as we're talking about the Bible and sort of what is the Bible and what do we do with it. And before we get started on these three themes, though, I think we should take a minute to talk about a little bit of the boring stuff, the historical context of where where in time and where in kind of the geopolitical world we are, because that really is the important backdrop to Jeremiah. So, we have to do some of that hard work and some of that digging first before we can get to these three themes and and understand it. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code NORMALPEOPLE, that's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code NORMALPEOPLE. So we begin the book of Jeremiah with this introduction in chapter one, and it's really setting up the call of Jeremiah to speak into the situation in the first 10 verses. We, we get this with the naming of three kings, or we'll, we'll say regents, uh, as we'll learn in a minute. But the first of these is Josiah. And so, we know Josiah from the Josianic reforms. He was really trying to bring people back to an understanding of what it means to follow God and follow the rules and follow the covenants. And so, he's, uh, he's, a, he's a good king in that sense. But in around 608, uh, 609, he is in battle with the Egyptians at Megiddo, and the king of Egypt, Necho II, kills Josiah. And at that point, his son, Jehoiakim, it's important that you get the end of that, Jehoiakim, right? It takes over from Josiah. And generally, especially in the rabbinic literature, Jehoiakim is not seen as a good king, and, and especially in a religious sense, but especially in a political sense. He can't decide with whom he should place his loyalties. Because we have, around the time of Jehoiakim, a changing of the guards in the broader political climate. So, for about a hundred or more years, uh, more than a hundred years, but around there, uh, the Assyrians had been the dominant force. And in 722, Assyria actually took the northern kingdoms, Israel, and pretty much wiped them out. And so, now we have the southern kingdom of Judah, who survived this, you know, Jerusalem didn't get wiped out with the Assyrians. But around... 612 or so, a new group of people 
started to take over called the Babylonians. And in 612, there's this battle in Nineveh, which would have been the, the, the capital of Assyria. The Babylonians win that and become the region's dominating force. So, there's a changing of the guard from Assyria to Babylon. And importantly, Egypt had thrown in their alliance with Assyria during this time. And so, Egypt and Assyria were facing off against the Babylonians. The Babylonians win. So, of course, the Babylonians not super keen on the Egyptians at this point. And who lies in between the areas of the north and the east where the Babylonians are coming from and the Egyptians who just royally pissed off the Babylonians, but this land here of Judah. So, Jehoiakim is physically and politically caught in the middle between Egypt and and Babylon. And he can't decide with whom he should place his loyalties. So, of course, and after the king of Egypt killed Josiah, his father, at Megiddo, the king of Egypt appoints Jehoiakim as king. And so, of course, there's a natural loyalty there. However, in, in 605, so just a few years later, the Egyptians are defeated by the Babylonians at a battle, a famous battle called Carchemish. So, Jehoiakim switches his allegiances to Babylon. He's a pretty fickle guy switches his allegiances to Babylon. So, oh, oh, Babylon, you're the dominating force? Okay, uh, well, I'm going to throw in my lot with you because I don't want you to come and destroy Jerusalem. Thank you very much. However, just a few years later, the Babylonians lose a battle to the Egyptians. And so, Jehoiakim switches again and chooses to throw his lot in with Egypt. This does not go well for Babylon. They, they do not take this well. So, they come marching down. And in just a few years, in 598, Babylon takes Jerusalem. Um, Jehoiakim dies in battle. They deport many. They, they set up Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, or also known in other texts in the Bible, Jeconiah. They set him up as the regent. So, he's kind of the governor. He no longer can be king because Babylon has now sort of taken over Jerusalem. So, but, but then the king of, of Babylon gets paranoid and says, well, who's to keep him from kind of avenging his father's death? So, we probably shouldn't have Jeconiah or Jehoiachin on the throne. So, they actually take him, deport him to Babylon and place Jehoiakim's brother, uh, so Josiah's other son, on the throne, Zedekiah. Or not on the throne, but as a as a regent. So, so now Zedekiah is the one who's in charge, left in charge by the Babylonians after they come in and and you know really take siege and and overtake Jerusalem, declaring it for their own. And now basically they become a vassal of Babylon, and Zedekiah is put in place to be that governor. The quote unquote rightful king Jehoiachin is deported. And so, there's a battle there, which we won't get into, but there's a contingent of Jews who are also deported to Babylon who see Jehoiachin as the rightful heir to the throne. And then there's this other group of people who stay behind in Jerusalem who are loyal to Zedekiah. And that's basically the the political upheaval and turmoil that is the backdrop to Jeremiah. So, this during this whole time, we have just this, this huge question mark of who are we going to be loyal to. But chapter one paints that historical political backdrop and, and doesn't go into a lot of detail, but that's what the, uh, the ancient readers would have, have heard when you mention these names of Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. And, and that's really important because this is a political book through and through. 
And a lot of prophetic literature is, and we'll talk about that more toward the end. But the first theme that I want to talk about, which we I just mentioned, is loyalty and allegiance. And chapter 2 goes into this quite a bit. And the way that Jeremiah talks about it, which is true in a lot of prophetic literature, the way Jeremiah talks about loyalty and allegiance is through the language of covenant. And we've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast, this covenant that God had made on Sinai and in throughout Deuteronomy, you can read about this covenant. And these are stipulations, if, if a lot of if-then conversations, if you do this, if you will obey by my law, if you, if you follow my guidelines, then you will prosper, I will bless you, and if you don't, then I will curse you. And this is the, the covenant, this is what shapes the identity of Israel and, and their relationship with God. And so, it's no surprise then that this is the theme of the book of Jeremiah. In a lot of ways, Jeremiah is, and a lot of the prophetic literature, is making sense of this political turmoil in light of the promises that God has made. How do we make sense of what's happening? And so, you know, chapter 2 sets up this idea of loyalty and allegiance, gives a little context. And then the end of chapter 2 is actually kind of a lawsuit that's indicting the southern kingdom indicting them for breaking the covenant. And it's so it's interesting this theme is so pervasive because there's these two realities going on, the tumultuous world of of geopolitics at, which is surrounded by really Jehoiakim's indecisiveness of who he's going to throw his lot in with and his loyalty. Are we loyal to Egypt? Are we loyal to Assyria? Well, we were loyal to Assyria, but now we have to be loyal to Babylon. Do we rejoin the Egyptians to see if we can overthrow Babylon together? Oh, if that doesn't work, we rejoin Babylon. And there's just this tremendous question of where is our allegiance? Who will we serve? And so, that's all going on, and it's a very important question of allegiance and loyalty. But Jeremiah paints this picture up on top of that, uh, alongside of it, a new reality. Will we be loyal to Yahweh and the covenant that Yahweh has made with us and that we have made with Yahweh? Are we going to be loyal to that? And so, sort of, uh, not not to be crass, but let's not get distracted by all of this political turmoil. Let's come back to the question of this foundational covenant, this foundational relationship, are we going to be loyal to that? The geopolitical landscape changes and it shifts, and there's all these questions, and there's turmoil, and there's chaos, and that, and we can go down that, and it can take us a lot of energy, or we can ask the question, will we be loyal to Yahweh? And Jeremiah is basically saying the answer to that is, no, we have, we have not. But we can return. We can turn back. There for a while, there's going to be some destruction that we have brought on ourselves by breaking the covenant. But at the end of this time, there's hope. There will be a rebuilding and a replanting if we can follow the covenant. And what, what are really, what's the problem here? And we'll get there in a minute. What, what is it that Israel or that the southern kingdom is doing, Judah's doing here, that's causing this break in the relationship with Yahweh? But before we get there, I want to take a minute and talk about the second theme. So, the first theme that pervades the book is loyalty and allegiance. And we see this set up in chapter 2, and again, you'll see it throughout. There's about 15 sections in the book of Jeremiah. It's not 
incredibly organized. It's not one of the books that sort of follows a lot of a linear path. It's not a narrative. It's largely poetic, a lot of oracles and sayings and passages that follow similar themes, but there's not a lot of, uh, scholars wouldn't say that it's a, uh, there's a clear organizational pattern to the book. There's definitely sections that have themes, but there's not a real pattern. So, the second theme that gets set up early on, chapter three, and again, throughout the book in different sections, is passion. Passion and love. And that's important because back then, covenant didn't necessarily, wasn't emotional. When we talked about love or loyalty, there wasn't a lot of emotionality as part of that conversation. There was, you know, we we pledge our allegiance to you and you pledge your troops essentially to us and give you give us safety, we give you loyalty and often money as a tribute. And that's the backdrop of, of covenant and sort of these agreements between the suzerain, the one in power and the vassal, the one who's being taken care of. But for Jeremiah... There is a tremendous amount of passion, both from Jeremiah and from Yahweh, and sometimes, importantly, we see in chapter 8, it's really hard to tell where the grief and the passion, the emotion is coming from. Uh, There's a famous chapter in in chapter 8, we talked about, is there no balm in Gilead? There's a famous, if you grew up in the South, we had a famous hymn, no balm in Gilead. And there's a a verse in chapter 9, verse 3, where there's the formula, thus says the Lord which you'll see a lot, of course, in the prophecies. Thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. And there's, there's some ambiguity there on, uh, wait, who was saying all of that? Was that Jeremiah or was that Yahweh? And, and Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann, in his commentary on Jeremiah, which I highly recommend, by the way, called Exile and Homecoming, just it's called a commentary on Jeremiah. And he just makes the point that there is a blurring and it, it, it really doesn't matter. It's kind of on purpose that the grief of the prophet is the grief of Yahweh. And it's just a really touching chapter. If read through the lens of death and destruction and war and heartbreak over some of the social injustices that were happening that led to, according to Jeremiah, that led to this exile. But that's important, again, because it's a very, dare I say, humanizing look at Yahweh. It's not just this mechanical robot king who is dictating uh, the laws of nature or the geopolitical realities like a chess master and we are God's pawn. But really, this relationship of heart and passion and yearning. And Jeremiah sets this up early on in chapter 3 by saying that, you know, basically setting it up as Yahweh as the yearning husband, the, the, the caring, loving husband. Of course, that does not take away some of the challenges of also you break my covenant and you get exiled and you get destroyed and really bad things happen to you. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. 
You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. And we've talked again, if you read toward the end of Deuteronomy, the list of curses, it's, it's pretty horrendous of what happens if you don't do what God says. So, we don't want to dismiss that, and we have to deal with that. And I think it's important to deal with it. It's important to keep talking about it, which we do quite a bit here on the podcast. But I don't think that takes away from the value and the vision of seeing Yahweh's passion really come through and the, and the love that is coming through here in, in the book. And we see this in, in Jeremiah 31, again in chapter 8, and, and through in Jeremiah 31, we see the recognition that really what we're talking about is, is our hearts, which is this passion thing. We're not talking about law as much as we're talking about there's a heart problem. So, Israel has a, the, the southern kingdom has a, a collective heart problem. And we see this in chapter 5. We see it in 31 as well. But in chapter 5, it really sets it up. So, you know, you have Yahweh's passion and and I think I like passion because it's more neutral. There's a really positive side of that. There's a deep grief and a deep love for Israel, uh, for the Southern Kingdom. And yet, the, the passion can also come out as sort of this, God is a jealous God. And there can be this anger toward the injustices. And, and I, I don't want to invalidate that too. Sometimes we think of God as the violent God, but I think we mentioned in our episode with Brent Strawn, but thinking about it from the, the vantage point of the oppressed, or the marginalized... It can validate that anger, that righteous anger, to topple these systems of oppression and injustice. And, and sometimes I think we can see God's anger in that humanizing way, and I mean that in, in a positive sense, not necessarily justifying or vindicating violence, condoning violence, but sense of, of a righteous anger. 
everyone. We're going to pause for just a minute here on the podcast to remind you that if you'd like to support the work we do at The Bible for Normal People, please just head to Patreon at patreon.com front slash The Bible for Normal People. There you'll find all sorts of ways to support us for as little as a dollar a month and connect with the community there. One group we want to recognize from that group of supporters is our producers group. They get on calls with us and us feedback uh, just help make the show what it is. So thanks to Jordan Gooman, John Bonnet, Preston Price, Andre Okonov, Kevin Chup, Harrison Hobgood, Lindsay Cullen, Brooke Wilson, Katie Komen, Pamela Lang, and Craig Kovich. We couldn't do what we do without you. Now back to the show. We, we have here, as part of the second theme of passion and love, the, what, what the heart of the problem is, and the problem is our heart. In chapter 5, the southern kingdom has stubborn and rebellious hearts, it says in, in verse 23 of chapter 5. So, that's what's bringing all of this on, uh, the stubborn and rebellious hearts of the people. And then it's, it's interesting because then uh, he goes into three very specific things. What do we mean by stubborn and rebellious hearts? Well, they've grown fat, they've grown wealthy, they've grown sleek. So, this self-sufficiency and greed has taken hold. They've grown fat, they've grown wealthy, they've grown sleek. And he ties that, the author ties that to when you're self-sufficient and greedy, they no longer seek justice. And that, what does that mean? He's very clear on this. They don't promote the case of the fatherless or the poor. So, chapter 5 is the indictment. We have this lawsuit of being unfaithful to the covenant, and that can sound really legal. And then in chapter 5, we get this passionate plea for what, what does that actually mean? Let's, let's break that down. It means that they're self-sufficient, they've grown fat, they've grown wealthy, they've grown greedy, they no longer seek justice, they don't promote the case of the fatherless or the poor. So, I think that's a pretty biting commentary on the challenges of their day. So, we have this uh, this theme of loyalty and allegiance that gets set up in chapter 2, and we see it throughout the book. We have this second theme of passion and love, and we see God's grief in chapter 8, the husband who's yearning to return into right relationship in chapter 3, and the heart problem of the southern kingdom, which is a, it's a collective heart problem, that as a culture and as a society, we've not promoted the case of the fatherless, of the poor, no longer seeking justice, have gotten greedy, self-sufficient, grown fat, grown wealthy, and that's a problem. That's a major problem to the point that something drastic and dramatic has to take place, according to Jeremiah and Jeremiah's uh, reading of the word of the Lord. So, those are the two themes so far we've talked about, loyalty, allegiance, passion, and love. And the third, which I think is important to understanding the book of Jeremiah, is this royal temple ideology. What I might call, to uh, make it more modern, is an unhealthy merging of church and state the royal temple ideology. And it's much more than that. It's not just a merging of church and state, but it's an overlay of an overconfident and over-certain understanding of our relationship with God. So, the elites, especially in the religious realm, the pastors of the day, the prophets and the priests who have an in with the king, who have an in with the, the princes is sometimes how it's translated, but the, the socialites and the political elite of the day there were religious people mixed in with that, the prophets and the priests, and they had this understanding where they had put God in a box. 
And so long as we say the right words, I almost had like these incantations, as long as we say the right things, then we can just trust in this promise of God, which was set up that forever and ever, God will be present. God won't let anything bad happen to us. We can do whatever we want. It doesn't really matter. So they had lost sight of their obligations of the covenant and had become basically entitled. That's a good word. They'd become entitled that uh, no matter what we do, God has made a promise. God said forever. We will have a person, a son of David on the throne forever and ever. That's ironclad. If God said it, that settles it. It's God's promise for all time. And Brueggemann calls this the royal temple ideology. And I think that's a good way of saying it. Royal on the one hand, which is dealing with royalty, the state, and temple on the other, the church. So, this royal temple ideology that has combined these two. And we see it most prominently in Jeremiah in chapter 7 and chapter 26. And I would encourage you, if you're driving, do not do this. But if you're not, just take some time, maybe in the next few days, and, and read through chapter 7 and chapter 26. They are my favorite chapters in the book of Jeremiah. So, there's this ideology of we're on God's side and nothing bad can happen to us, which now that I think of it, reminds me a little bit of, uh, I think it's in Joshua chapter 5, when Joshua, there's, you know, of course, Joshua was all about battle and conquest, and Joshua's near Jericho, and he sees someone standing in front of him with a sword in his hand. And of course, Joshua wants to know, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the person says, neither. As a commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. I always love that, that God's impartial. Are you for us? Are you for our enemies? Neither. Even though Joshua's on this conquest in the name of God, a commander of the Lord's army comes and says, neither. Probably doesn't instill a lot of trust in what Joshua's up to. But I appreciate that because it it reminds me here of uh, this royal temple ideology. They, They thought God was on their side. They didn't bother to ask, and perhaps God would have said, neither. And Jeremiah was saying, God is not on your side. God's on the side of justice. And according to the opening in chapter 5, God's on the side of the poor and the fatherless. That's whose side God is on. So, neither is what he says in Joshua 5. And that kind of, I think, encapsulates this ideology that had been seeping into the religious and that's important, the religious clients, not just the politicians. In fact, we'll see in a minute, the politicians save Jeremiah's life. It's the politicians who do the right thing in the end. It's the religious leaders, the ones who have the most to gain by keeping the status quo, who are enforcing and reinforcing this royal temple ideology. Because if it doesn't matter what we do, then the, our jobs are secure, we can stay fat and happy. And In chapter 7, we have this sermon that Jeremiah gives about this ideology, the royal temple ideology. So, chapter 7 is the the sermon that Jeremiah gives. Chapter 26 is actually a narrative, it's a story about what was going on when Jeremiah gave that sermon in chapter 7. So, 7 and 26 are connected. So, 26 is a story surrounding what happens to Jeremiah when he gives that sermon at the temple. And chapter 7 is that sermon. And so, you can read those, kind of have to read those uh, hand in hand. Uh, But in chapter 7, verse 4, Jeremiah makes this statement, you know, don't trust in these words. And Brueggemann makes this point in his commentary that it seems like they've made this into like an incantation, almost like if you just say these words, it's almost like a magical formula 
then you will be protected. And he says it that way as almost like a mantra, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, three times, sort of this formula of certainty. No harm will come to us. And it sort of, again, reminds me a little bit of Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew, I think, toward the end of Matthew, maybe chapter 23 or something, where he says, woe to you, teachers of the law, you're a hypocrite. You give a tenth of your spices, but you've neglected the more important, the weightier matters of the law, which are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Blind guides strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. And uh, this is primarily, I think, what Jeremiah is getting at. Don't trust in these formulas and these incantations. You're neglecting the weightier things of the law and thinking that these easy, if I should say, easy, superficial things are going to be what keep you from judgment. So that's chapter seven. It's a great sermon. Check it out. It's, it's, a, it's a critique of this royal temple ideology, this merging of church and state. Then chapter six, 26, sorry, shows us what happens when this collision happens, when the church and state collides and you overlay that with an ideology of the status quo, that we have to keep things in place the way they are. And the people who are saying that the loudest are the people who benefit most from that system saying the same, which would be the priests in this case, who are gaining financially and politically from things staying the same, from this belief that God's on the side of our politics. In chapter 26, basically, we find out that when Jeremiah speaks against this, it is found treasonous, according to the priests. This is treason against the state. Are you going to let this so-called prophet speak against your political entities in this way? That's treason. And the priests ask Jeremiah to be put to death because of it which we learn, there's a little commentary, parenthetical there, that says this has happened before, and they did put this person to death when they spoke out against the royal temple ideology. And so, it's interesting that in chapter 26, it's the princes again, as it's often translated, but the the political elite, the politicians, who actually stand up and say, wait a minute, why would we do this? Do you not remember? So, here the, the politicians are giving a sermon back to the religious elite, the pastors of the day, saying, don't you remember the other prophet Micah? And here we have an example of where the Bible is citing itself. So, here in Jeremiah, they're citing the prophet Micah. Do you not remember Micah? And he prophesied and it came to pass and and it saved a bunch of trouble. And that was clearly speaking the word of the Lord. Why would we, we don't want this guy's blood on our hands. So, the the politicians kind of get it where the, the priests just want to, don't, don't bring any negativity in here. Don't, don't cause trouble. Don't bring any negative speech. God doesn't speak negatively. God only speaks to endorse what we're doing. And it's the political elite, the politicians who say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And that's, that's just a fascinating reversal of what you would expect. And it's a sad indictment of the state of things at that point. It reminds me of Jonah, where at the very beginning, there's this transformation where Jonah becomes a pagan, and the pagan sailors become Yahweh worshipers. The religious leaders become oblivious to the ways of God, and the politicians, the elite, the powerful, they get it, at least for a minute, or maybe for their own reasons, we don't know. But there is an individual, if you read at the end of chapter 26, one individual in particular that they single out to say, because he spoke up and protected Jeremiah, no harm came to him. And so, we see what happens when people in power use their power to put themselves maybe in harm's way or a position where if they side with those on the margins, they might lose their power, but they're speaking out about the injustice. A life is saved. The truth is heard. And I just think that's such a powerful statement for our current political climate 
as well as really understanding what was going on and understanding God spoken through Jeremiah here. So, what does all that mean? Well, hopefully it's a good understanding of these three important themes as you read through Jeremiah around the historical and political backdrop of loyalty and allegiance, passion and love, and this royal temple ideology that's at play. But that kind of draws us back to, I want to come back, and I think we've mentioned this before, what is prophecy? And I think there's this common understanding that prophecy is about this future reality. It's telling the future. And sometimes that happens. It's more about telling what the future might be if the current reality doesn't change. But it's not so much that as, it's not a future reality, but maybe we might call it an alternative reality. That there's all these systems at play, and Paul calls them current powers and principalities of darkness, we might say. It's the way the world works, the systems that are at play. And Jeremiah is calling us, and, and most of the prophets are calling us to see this alternative reality, both in terms of what's going on, we say, kind of in the spiritual realm, what's going on at the God's eye view, but also a current, an alternative to the status quo and what might be the case. So, it's a call toward a new way of living. So, we may not want to make today pronouncements on behalf of God, but I think it's a call to speaking the word of Yahweh, speaking what we find here in the scriptures to the socio-political powers of our day. And I, I think it's very relevant that we began this with talking about loyalty and allegiances, because when we bring this to the modern day and the modern political climate, I think there's a sense in which God is on the side of certain allegiances. God is on the side of the Democrats. God is on the side of the Republicans. And I think it kind of harkens back to this Jeremianic, there's political turmoil. There is a swapping of allegiances. Sort of where is God? We, we sort of take God as a token and place him on these certain different ideologies and labels and sides and groups. And really the undercurrent is, are we on God's side? And by that, do we have the same communal heart sickness and problem? And can we call it out whenever and however we see it, regardless of who, when, where, why, that we are willing to make that stand and say those things, even in the presence of, of powerful religious and political figures. And it is a communal event. As we saw in, in chapter 26, it was the marginalized voices, which Jeremiah would certainly represent, speaking up. And then it was those in power using that power to affect change and to, to save a life, allow the truth to be heard, to be spoken, creating climates where that can be had and not shutting that down because it's to their advantage not to hear that things are not quite right and to understand that that is an indictment of those in power and for those in power to realize that and to start to listen to these voices. So, uh, I think that's where I will leave that for now. But hopefully this has been, again, a helpful overview of Jeremiah and helpful to see how these texts, while they are full of complexities, and if you read Jeremiah, you will find lots of other things to quibble about and to have questions about and maybe to disagree with, but to see that there is a, a lot of goodness that can be had and uh, there's some good stuff in Jeremiah. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. We would encourage you to continue to, to connect with us online. We'd love to have these conversations. We'd love to know where you feel like we've gotten it right, where you feel like we've gotten it wrong. It's all part of the conversation. It's all part of Grist for the Mill. It's all part of the journey. So if you uh, would like to, you can 
hop on uh, thebibleforormalpeople.com. We have articles there. Or go to patreon.com front slash thebibleforormalpeople. Join our Slack group where you can continue to have conversations like this with uh, hundreds of uh, other people who are in a similar place on the journey. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.